0: Good morning. Good morning. I'll just say I try not to take it personally when the worship team leaves their gear up where I'm supposed to stand when I'm preaching. But, you know, when it's my wife, I, I wonder. For, uh, just by way of announcement, for those of you who were not able to stay after church last week for the family meeting, uh, we did make a decision together as a congregation to let the folks at Pleasant Hill who own this facility and to whom we pay rent, Uh, We made the decision to let them know that we feel our time at Stone Chapel is drawing to a close. Uh, We don't know exactly when, uh, but we do believe that uh, God is not calling us either to buy the facility uh, or to sign a long-term lease for it, so... uh, that doesn't mean that we are therefore going to go with the offer that we have in Catonsville. Uh, what it means is that we're continuing to seek God as to where he would have us be, but we feel confident uh, both as elders and we feel like the uh, the congregation has uh, has uh, come to a consensus that uh, that our time here is uh, is going to be coming to a close. So please continue to pray for us as elders as we work through other possibilities. And for me, as I engage with uh, colleagues and others who... Uh, we might be able to work with. Um, and if you have any specific questions about that, don't hesitate to ask any elder. So we're here in Romans chapter 11. We have been in 9 through 11 all fall, winter, and spring. And I'll warn you today, there's going to be a lot of flipping around in your Bibles. So warm your, warm your fingers up. As we talked about a couple weeks ago, if you boil down chapter 9, 10, and 11, I think it boils down to this, chapter 9 of Romans, Paul demonstrates that God is not unjust. In chapter 10, Paul demonstrates that God is not unavailable, and in chapter 11, as we'll see, Paul is going to demonstrate that God is not unfaithful. So God is not unjust, God is not unavailable, and God is not unfaithful. And so here we go, chapter 11, I ask then, did God reject his people? No. No. Absolutely not. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God didn't reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me too. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it's no longer by works. If it were, grace would, after all, no longer be grace. So what Paul is referring to here is this idea of a remnant that God preserves from among all of those who call themselves his people, a faithful remnant. These will be the people that he will use to work out his purposes. And so let's go back to Isaiah chapter 6, and we get a picture of this. You may be most familiar with this because it's the scene where Isaiah says, Here am I, send me. But after that, in, starting in verse 9, God says to Isaiah, Go and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding, be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused, make their ears dull, and close their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. And then I said, How long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined. And without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until Yahweh has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But just as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. What's going on here, Isaiah is prophesying Before, Israel is sent into exile, but at a time when things are not looking good for the nation. And he's commanded to tell God's people that God is going to bring on them a time of hardening, but that, just as the terebinth and the oak leave stumps behind after they're cut down, in the same way, God is going to leave something in the land. And so what we see in this passage is that God is working out his purposes, and God, moreover, is working out his purposes in his time, and that he sends his prophets to interpret how God is working out his purposes in his time. But we have to bear in mind with all of this that God is the one who gets to define what his purposes are. So with that in mind, let's go back. All the way to Genesis, the first book of the Bible, in chapter 45, toward the end. And to give you the back story, of course, you have Joseph, who is sold by his brothers into slavery. Joseph, the son of, of Jacob, renamed Israel. Joseph is sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt. And uh, and in this this chapter, we have the big reveal, where Joseph is about to reveal to his brothers who he is, because Joseph, after being sold to slavery in Egypt, ends up becoming a high official in the Egyptian uh, government, and his brothers have come to Egypt looking for food. During a severe famine, Joseph has managed the agricultural produce well, and so uh, he is frankly making a mint off of everybody else who didn't. And so Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there's been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will not be plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant here on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it wasn't you who sent me here, but it was God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. Here again, you see God preserving a remnant in order to work out his purposes in his time. And he's given Joseph the wisdom to tell his brothers what God is doing. So let's flip ahead to 1 Kings. And that passage that Paul cites, passage about Elijah that Paul cites. Chapter 19 of 1 Kings, I'll give you a moment to get there. And as you do the story in chapter 18, is one of the great smackdown stories in all of Scripture. This is where Elijah has a showdown with the prophets of Baal, and uh, he wins. Specifically, God wins. Baal is proven to be powerless. Elijah talks all kinds of smack and taunts the prophets. Their false god is not able to do anything, but the one true God sends fire down to burn up Elijah's offering, even though he soaked it in water. And after this kind of success, you might think Elijah would be feeling pretty good. But as it turns out, Elijah then becomes deeply depressed. In part, because the person he is trying to demonstrate God's power to, Jezebel, is not interested in learning about God's power. She's mostly interested in shutting him up. And Elijah, we read picking up in chapter 3, is afraid he ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba and Judah, so he's fleeing way to the south, into the desert, and he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert, came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Yahweh, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread, baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he lay down again. The angel of Yahweh came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat. The journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank, and strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night And the word of Yahweh came to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied, I have been very zealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars and put your your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Yahweh said, Go out. Stand on the mountain in the presence of Yahweh, for Yahweh is about to pass by. Now, what what is this scene reminding you of? Moses, right? Remember, Moses goes up on the mountain. He asks to see God's glory, and God says, I'm going to hide you here in this cleft of the rock. It, it may be that Elijah was trying to run back. He felt he was the only faithful one, so he was going to go back to the mountain of God. Maybe he thought that God would make him the same offer he made Moses, that he would... Wipe out the Israelites and make a new nation from him. So a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before Yahweh. But Yahweh wasn't in the wind. Bless you. After the wind, there was an earthquake. But Yahweh wasn't in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came fire. But Yahweh wasn't in the fire either. But after the fire came a still small voice. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. And a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he replied with the same answer that doesn't seem to have worked very well before. I've been very, very zealous for Yahweh, the God of hosts. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. And what does Yahweh say? Go back. Go back the way you came. Go to the desert of Damascus. And when you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. And also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Here's the deal, Elijah. You're not the only one left. I reserve 7,000 in Israel all of whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, all of whose mouths have not kissed him. Now, whether that 7,000 is a literal 7,000 or one of those symbolic numbers that signifies a complete and significant amount, if you take the seven signifying completion and the 1,000 meaning a lot, it doesn't matter. The point is, Elijah, you're not the only one. You need to stop this pity party and get back to work. Because God has done what? He's preserved a remnant. And so, what the prophets have to say during the exile, if you go flip ahead to Jeremiah, chapter 23... Jeremiah in chapter 23 says, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares Yahweh. Therefore, this is what Yahweh, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. The shepherds, of course, being a uh, figurative language, meaning their leaders. Because you've scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil that you have done, declares Yahweh. I myself... Will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they'll be fruitful and increase in number. I'll place shepherds over them who'll tend them. They'll no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares Yahweh. See, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, Yahweh, our righteousness. So then the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when people will no longer say, as surely as Yahweh lives who brought the Israelites out of Egypt, but now they're going to say, as surely as Yahweh lives who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north, and out of all the countries where he had banished them. And then they'll live in their own land. Jeremiah is an exilic prophet. He's prophesying to God's people during the exile, after they had been vomited out of the land because of their wickedness. And another exilic prophet that I think you know, Ezekiel. Can't talk about this without spending a little time in Ezekiel. Flip ahead to Ezekiel chapter 11. You can tell where Ezekiel is because those are the pages that are well-thumbed in your Bibles. Some of them are falling out. Chapter 11, starting in verse 13, As I was prophesying, Ezekiel says, "Pelatiah, son of Benaiah died, and I was bummed about that. I fell face down and cried out in a loud voice, Oh, Lord Yahweh, are you completely going to destroy the remnant of Israel? The word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, your brothers, your brothers who are your blood relatives in the whole house of Israel are those of whom the people of Jerusalem have said, they are far away from Yahweh. This land was given to us as our possession. Therefore say, this is what the Lord Yahweh says, although I sent them far away among the nations, even though I scattered them among the countries, yet for a little while I have been a sanctuary for them in the countries where they've gone. Therefore say, this is what the Lord Yahweh says, I will gather you from the nations and bring you back from the countries where you've been scattered. And I'll give you back the land of Israel again. They'll return to it and remove all of its vile images and detestable idols. I'll give them an undivided heart and put a new spirit in them. Sounds just like Jeremiah 31, doesn't it? I'll remove from them their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And then they'll follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They'll be my people and I will be their God But as for those whose hearts are devoted to their vile images and detestable idols, I will bring down on their own heads what they have done, declares the Lord Yahweh. Again, you have this remnant who has been scattered that God is going to bring back. So one more passage out of the Old Testament here to look at this remnant idea. Go back to Ezra. That's at the end of the historical books right before Nehemiah Ezra chapter 9 Here you have a scene in, in Ezra where God's people have been brought back from exile. This promise that he gave that he would bring his people back is now in the process of being fulfilled and you have the people gathered there but there is a problem. It turns out that the people have been unfaithful. Amen kept themselves separate from the nations with their detestable practices. So when Ezra heard about this, he says, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Have you ever experienced somebody who was appalled sitting there for hours on end, appalled, Like at you, this is not pleasant. So at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn. I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to Yahweh my God, and I prayed, Oh my God, I'm too ashamed and disgraced to lift up my face to you, my God, because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our forefathers till now, our guilt has been great because of our sins we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings, just as it is today. Remember, God brought his people back from exile, but not as independent sovereigns. They came back under the protection of world superpowers. But now for a brief moment, the Yahweh our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we're slaves, our God has not deserted us in our bondage. He's shown us kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He's granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he's given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. We'll skip ahead to 13. What, what's happened to us, Ezra says, is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt and yet Our God, you have punished us less than our sins have deserved and have given us a remnant like this. Shall we again break your commands and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Oh, Yahweh, God of Israel, you are righteous. We're left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it not one of us can stand in your presence. And so let's bounce back to Isaiah then. Because I think Isaiah gives us a sense of how this remnant thing works out. Isaiah chapter 11. That's certainly why you're getting there. I think this, this remnant motif is one that we see coming out in the history of the church. Often God's people become unfaithful, and God raises up a renewal movement. A a number of faithful people within a larger church or a larger denomination that sometimes renew that denomination, sometimes they go off and start something new. Here in Isaiah 11, A shoot will come out, out of the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh, and he will delight in the fear of Yahweh. See, this stump doesn't just stay there as a stump to rot. This is a stump in which there is still life and out of which a shoot will come. He will delight in the fear of Yahweh. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he'll give decisions for the poor of the earth. He'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he'll slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together And a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. The young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. And the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people's The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. That root of Jesse is, of course, good. And this picture we get here in Isaiah is the same thing that we have seen in so many other passages that we've looked at, especially through chapter 10, is this, this picture of God restoring his people, yes, and that's a big deal. If that were all, that would be enough. But not only is God restoring a divided people, God is bringing the nations in as well. Through this Messiah, God is welcoming all. And the way that he is accomplishing this, it seems like Paul is trying to say, is through this remnant here at the present time, chosen by grace. So as I hear these passages about God's remnant, I, the question I have is, how do I make sure that I'm part of the remnant and not part of the other remainder? Right? I mean, if the remnant is going to be preserved, if the remnant is the people God's going to work through, if the remnant is going to be used, if the remnant's going to survive, I think I want to be part of the remnant How do you get to be part of the remnant? Paul says it's chosen by grace. Specifically God's grace. Not by works, specifically your works. There's nothing you can do to be part of the remnant. There's nothing you can do to prove that you're part of the remnant. You get to be part of the remnant by God's gracious choice. Because it's God who is working out his purposes... It is God who is working out his purposes in his time. It is God who has sent his prophets and his apostles like Paul to interpret what God is doing in his time, what his purposes are, and how he's working them out. Because, remember, it is God who gets to define what God's purposes are. Let's pray. Lord God, we affirm... With your prophets and apostles, that you are holy, righteous, and just. And we affirm that your purposes are far greater than anything we could come up with on our own. We pray that we would be alert to understand what your purposes are, that we would be humble not demand that you work out our purposes but that we would partner with you in working out yours in your time I pray that we would hear obediently the voice of your spirit as he speaks through your prophets and apostles as to what you're doing I pray that we would always recognize that our participation with you in your purposes the privilege we have of partnering with you in the redemption of the world is not something that comes about by anything we've done, but solely by your grace bestowed on us. All this we ask in the name of our Lord, Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ.